Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, so it's 11.30. I'm a bit worried about how long this may take. So I'll just let you know that if you have to go somewhere, I will not be offended if you have to leave while I'm, while I'm speaking, but I will try to keep it as, um, uh, do it as quickly as I possibly can. All right. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for um, everything that we've experienced as a house this morning, Lord God. Um, I thank you, Lord God, for family. I pray for this word, Lord God, and I pray, Lord God, that it, um, I pray that it would help those, Lord God, that it needs to help, Lord God, and it would um, grow those that it needs to grow, Lord God. I thank you for your presence in this house this morning, Lord God, that you're always with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, so uh, we were asked to speak on uh, relationships for March. So like uh, the messages that you've heard this month have all been on relationships, which was kind of cool when we were asked because um, I had been pondering already what I would speak on if I was asked to speak again. And it was on the relationship between uh, husband and wife and how it reflects, um, how it reflects God. Um, so three things. Number one, the image of God. Number two, the mystery. And number three, the other half. <clears throat> number one, the image of God. So in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 28, uh, you can go there. I'll start reading anyway, though. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. I'm going to skip ahead almost a chapter's worth of verses to like roughly the middle of Genesis 2, just because it's when Adam kind of comes back up again. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But Adam, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord God had taken out from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. This is Adam speaking, and it's prophetic. Because did he have a father or mother? No. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, now Hebrew is a very, very difficult um, language to translate because if you were to count up all the words that I just read, there'd probably be about a quarter of the amount of Hebrew words actually used. So a lot of the, a lot of the words, the, uh, some of the meanings have to be inferred. And then the older the Hebrew is, the more basic it is, which means that it has no punctuation, like there's no punctuation in Hebrew at all, and we don't have all these little words like and, if, and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of that is inferred by the context of what is written. So, just so that I can try and make a point, 
I'm going to read Genesis 1 from 27 to 28, just in the individual Hebrew words. All right. So, Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God created Adam, resemblance. Resemblance, God created, male, female, created. That's the literal Hebrew words, all right? Okay, and then it says, God blessed, God said, bear fruit, multiply, fill land, subdue. All right, so there's lots of words missing there, but the word I want to focus on that's missing there is the word them. The word them is not there at all in any of those, uh, in any of those verses. So, what does that mean? All right, that means that, well, in my opinion, what that means, which I could be wrong, I'm not perfect, um, Adam was only created in the image of God when woman was still in him. We know this because God didn't take Eve out of Adam until uh, Genesis 2.21. So Adam was created in the image of God, but when he was created in the image of God, it says that he created them male and female, but the word them is not there. So in my opinion, from reading it just as the Hebrew, that when Adam was created, Adam was created male and female, and he was in the image of God, and God was, uh, sorry, and woman was still in man. Adam could procreate when he was male and female, when he was initially created. We know this because he was commanded to fill the earth and subdue it before woman was taken out of man. Okay, so God did not take woman out of man so that man could procreate. God's reason for splitting his character between male and female is because Adam needed help. So God's main intention was that Adam needed a helper who was comparable to him. The word help in Hebrew is a word called as a word that says a word, sorry, Ezer. So it's used 21 times in the Bible. The funny thing is it's only used twice for woman and that's in these verses, Genesis. So wherever else it's used in the Bible, that word helper is used of God how he helps us. So my help comes from the Lord. So when people try to say, like, God didn't give him a helper because he needed someone to wash his dishes and clean his clothes and look after his children, like, God gave him a helper who's to help him in the same way that God helps us. Okay, Tasha and I are currently raising children, um, and the way that my wife and I deal with the children I think shows exactly what God's intention was when he designed us to be two, but when we come together to be one, and when we are one, to be in the image of God. Okay, uh, So Tash represents God's compassion, mercy, and grace with our children, and I represent his tough love. All right, So it's love in both circumstances, but it's a different kind of love. Uh, so there was this one time when um, Kezia was always a very, well, no, she was also disobedient a little bit, but she was also very, like, you could tell her what to do and she'd do it. If you told her off, she'd feel upset about it, those kinds of things. She didn't really, like, dig her heels in and, like, fight you so much. But Zara, oh, my gosh. She, if you tell her to do something, the answer is no, and it's not just no, and then you can convince her it's yes, it's no, and it's just no. So she's not going to do it. There was this one time, I don't know what she did, but I heard her screaming inside the house. So I went into the house to see what was going on. 
<clears throat> and Tash had tried to put her in timeout. She'd already had her in timeout for what, like five minutes or something like that? Like five minutes she'd been in timeout and she was just absolutely screaming. So I was like, what's going on? Oh, I've tried to put this girl in timeout, she's done this thing, whatever, and she's just like, she keeps coming out of timeout, she won't stay there, all this kind of stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll put her in timeout. So this is the way I do timeout. You sit in timeout, and you sit in timeout for as long as it takes you to get to grips with the fact that you're going to apologize for what you've done. So she's sitting in timeout, screaming in the house with Tash. And I tried to leave her in the house for a little while. That was not working because I was working outside. So I had to keep coming in because of what was going on inside the house. So eventually I said to Tash, I said, look, I'm just going to take her. I'm going to put her outside where I am. And I'm just going to keep her there until she's ready to say sorry or whatever. So I kept her outside and it took two hours I had her sitting on a sawhorse in the garage so that she couldn't get off and walk away. So she's just balanced there sitting on a sawhorse. And I would go and talk to her and I'd be like, are you ready to say you're sorry? And she'd say, no. I'd be like, okay. Tash was starting to freak out. Like, does she even know how to say sorry? She was only two at the time. I was like, she has said sorry before. I know for a fact she said sorry before. She knows how to say sorry. She just doesn't want to say sorry. Because she was even saying to me very, very sweetly, daddy, down, please? No. Like, no, you're not going down. You're staying there until you say sorry. Then eventually she'd say, yes, she was going to say sorry. So I'd pick her up and I'd take her inside to see Tash. And then she was all apologetic to me. She wouldn't actually say sorry, but she was like, yes, I'm ready to say sorry. Take her inside to the house. As soon as she saw Tash, she was not going to say sorry. Take her back out, put her back on the sawhorse. So this, that was happening like every 15 minutes until two hours had passed. And as I walked past, because I, I think I was cleaning the car, as I walked past her and she saw me from the garage, she just says, Daddy, say sorry. And I was like, okay. So I took her inside and she apologized to Tash. She said, sorry. Tash gave her a hug. All good. Now that process happens, but it takes maybe five minutes or so. And she'll do it every time. She'll apologize. The other day, uh, or no, yesterday, sorry, I was mowing the lawns and then Kezia, Tash was not around. Kezia and Zara were fighting in the room and Zara, Kezia came out saying, oh, we're fighting, we're fighting. Zara keeps breaking the things that I'm building and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I can't deal with this right now. Just bring her outside, put her on the deck, and you go in the room and play. So she brought her outside, put her on the deck, and I'm still mowing the lawns, and she's there on the deck crying, and I'm like, I've had to do this so many times. I'm not doing this right now. I'm just going to ignore her. So she stood on the deck staring at me crying for I don't even know how long. And then after I had finished mowing the lawns, I was cleaning up the stuff in the garage, and then Kezia came up to me, and Zara was there, and Kezia comes and taps me on the side, and she's like, uh, Zara came up to me and said, Kiki, Zara say sorry. All on her own, that's what she did. She went and she apologized to her sister because that's the standard that we had set for them. When we put them to bed, well, I, I usually put the girls to bed when I come home from work. So when I put them to bed, this is my, <laughs> my thing. I'll say to them, well, to Zara, because is old enough now, she puts herself to bed pretty much. But when I say to Zara, I'll be like, all right, now you're going to go to sleep and you're not going to get out of your bed. If you get out of your bed, you're going to be in trouble. So I'll leave the room. She'll cry. And then I'll come back. I said, I told you, you need to be quiet. You need to go to sleep. Otherwise, you're going to get in trouble. And then she'll cry again. And then Tash will come to me and she'll be like, look, she's upset. Like, you know, stop being so mean to her. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, it works. I can make her go to sleep. I know I can. And she's like, but you're being so mean to her. And then like, she'll be crying. And if she wakes up, she'll be crying. And then I'll be like, look, you need to go to sleep. And then Tash will go in and she'll pick her up and she'll hold her and she'll cuddle her and she'll start singing to her. And then she'll just snuggle into it. And then sometimes she'll look at me like... Yeah, yeah, and Tasha will be holding her, Tasha will be cuddling her, Tasha will be singing to her, and then she'll 
calm down and she won't fall asleep, but she'll calm down and then Tash can put her down and she'll fall asleep. Both of these things are attributes of God's character. Both of these things are attributes of God's love. When Tash feels compassionate because they're in pain and she wants to hug them and tell them it's okay and she loves them no matter what's happened, that is 100% absolutely God's character. When uh, I see that they've done something silly and something horrible and something horrible has happened to them and I say to them, well, that's obviously because you did this and you shouldn't have done that. That was dumb. And because you did a dumb thing, a horrible thing has happened to you. Like, that's also God's character. God wants to God wants to point out to us what we're doing wrong. He doesn't want us to do wrong things. He knows that bad things happen when you make silly decisions, and he wants those things to be pointed out. Both of these things are God's character, and both of them are attributed to his love. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't try to correct us because he wouldn't care where we went and where we ended up. Two, the mystery. Uh, I think this answers why God separated himself with us more than anything. Um, but it's not said in Genesis, and that's why it's considered a mystery. It was pointed out by Paul uh, in Ephesians. So it's pointed out that this would, was going to be a prophetic picture of Christ's relationship with the church. So the relationship between husband and wife is a prophetic uh, picture of his relationship with the church. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5 from 20 to 33. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So just remember that, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her, her himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his own wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let, one of, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So these verses have usually, modern days, been put, used to point out that Christianity, like, subjects women, like lowers women and raises men. There's a couple of things to consider. First of all, the time when this was written. So in the time that this was written, Pharisees, if you read the, the old books that the Pharisees used to write, they had absolutely no respect whatsoever for women. There's a verse in the New Testament, which is quite shocking actually, when Jesus says that you are supposed to marry one person, like you're supposed to marry one wife, and that Moses gave you a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard, but it was never God's intention that you should be divorced. And then, I can't remember, I think it was Peter. I'm pretty sure Peter says, like, this is such a hard thing, how could we ever follow it? Like, but we think today, like, that's like a common thing. You, you get married and you don't get divorced. You know, like people definitely get divorced, but like that's, that's something that's quite common today. But back then, it was very, very normal. Like the divorce rates were massive because women were treated as property. They weren't treated as, um, um, as equals. 
And there was a famous passage, uh, sorry, a famous quote from a Pharisee which said that he would rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. So women in this culture were like completely subjected. So first of all, we like to read the parts that we think are like putting women down. But if we think about the culture that it was written in, first of all it says that you need to submit to one another in the fear of God. And then women are told not to do a new thing, but to do the same thing, to submit to their husbands. The only person who receives an extra commandment is the man who is told that he is expected to lay down his life for his wife. We are expected to nourish, cherish, provide, and make beautiful our brides the way that Jesus Christ nourishes, cherishes, and makes beautiful his bride uh, in preparation for his return. <laughs> okay, uh, number three, the other half. This is the hard part. Um, outworking this prophetic picture in the harsh reality of real life. Like, like seeing something as a perfect scenario, how you'd really, really love it to be, and how things actually work out is uh, very, very different sometimes. In real life, we need to create relationships with the opposite sex. Uh, the problem that we have is when we try to use biblical examples of relationships, they're often very, very difficult to take examples from. Um, I remember hearing a sermon about relationships once in which the pastor said that he had been studying the Bible, um, trying to find a biblical relationship that he could use as an example for his teaching. He was confounded by the fact that almost all of the biblical relationships he studied taught more about how not to be married and raise your children than how, he con <laughs> than how to. He concluded that the couple on the Emmaus Road, who Jesus met after the resurrection, were Cleopas and maybe Cleopas's wife, and if that was the case, then maybe this was a relationship worth emulating. <laughs> After I started to look at it myself, I could see where the problems kind of lie when you study biblical relationships to, just, to make decisions about how to choose a life partner and how to have a relationship. It becomes very difficult. So some examples. Number one, you could throw your wife under the bus directly to God, forcing you out of paradise. So there's Adam. Um, if, your wife, <laughs> if your wife is super hot, you could tell everyone that she's your sister and then sleep with someone else when she doesn't give you any children. So that was Abraham. Um, you could not want one of your wives because she's not as attractive as her sister and then be deceived into marrying her. That was Jacob. Uh, you could be forced to marry your brother's wife because he died. That was like Judah's sons. I think that happened to three of them. Um, you could cheat on your wife or your wives with your daughter-in-law, but you know, it's not really your fault. You didn't realize she was your daughter-in-law. You were pretty sure she was just a prostitute. That was Judah. Uh, you could marry someone that you didn't share your religious beliefs with. That was Moses and Samson. Or you could just marry a prostitute. That was Josh Joshua, Hosea, and Samson again. Um, you could fight and kill an enemy force to be given... Uh, the daughter of a noble, uh, that was Athenael. Or you could have multiple wives and concubines, that was Gideon, David, and Solomon, which was against what God had said a leader should do, by the way. This is my favorite. You could compete in a beauty pageant where all the contestants have to sleep with the judge to win and become the queen of a nation. That was Esther. I think most of these stories are testimonies of what God did in spite of what happened not because of what happened. 
So it doesn't mean that the, the Bible sometimes is a historical document which tells you what God did in a situation. It's not him trying to tell you what you should do in a situation. Okay, so that's a defense of those things. I know they sound pretty bad. But, <laughs> but in reality, the problem then comes into, like, what are we actually supposed to do, though? Like, when we're trying to look for a spouse, if you're single and you're looking for a spouse, what are you supposed to do? If you're, you're raising kids to try to find eventually a spouse, what are you supposed to do? Now, there are some examples of which we don't really know much. So you've got Noah, which I pretty sure he had a good marriage. It doesn't say he didn't have a good marriage. It didn't say he did have a good marriage. You've got Jacob, who was married and had kids. We don't know how good his marriage was either. There's not really much about it in there. Um, okay, then we have the supposed good examples, which is Isaac and Rebecca. I'm sure you guys all know the story of Isaac and Rebecca, or most of you, uh, which is kind of like sending your dad's best friend to go and choose a wife for you. Um, but that is kind of lauded as one of the good uh, relationships. Uh, then you've got Ruth and Boaz uh, is lauded as a good relationship in the Bible, um, which a lot of people like to quote. But that's where Ruth got Boaz to propose by dressing sexy and laying at his feet while he was drunk one night. So, again... <laughs> So I recognize so far that all these examples have been Old Testament examples. So what does that mean? So what does the New Testament say then about how we're supposed to choose our other half? Are you guys hoping we're going to get some solace from the, from the New Testament? Sadly, we can't find much advice in the New Testament either, other than don't be unequally yoked, don't have sex before marriage, and the most exhaustive portion on, in the Bible in the New Testament on dating is Paul pretty much saying that he'd rather that we stayed virgins forever like him. So... <laughs> so how do we decide how we're going to find partners today and how do we teach our children how they are supposed to find partners today when the Bible doesn't really give us a clear instruction there's no in the Ten Commandments what you should do to find a partner The other thing is it's the, probably the second biggest decision you're ever going to make in your life. We were youth pastors for 10 years at a church that had a very, very bad male-to-female relationship culture. Um, some of that was, honestly, us. Like, we had ideas that we thought were genius and special and clever, but they weren't really. Um, some of that was just a regular church culture which I didn't figure out until much later, that that was um, mainly, uh, which I had never read this book, but it was mainly because there was a book written in the 90s about how church male-to-female relationships should work. And it was an American book, which again, like I said, I had never read, but by the time I had gotten saved, it had become one of those like how-to books that had become a big thing in the Christian church, which everybody was like, oh, this is a really, really great idea. This is godly and biblical, and this is how we should all do relationships. So now... Tash and I had a, um, a story. I'm sure you guys have all got a story about how you met your partner if you're married. And we used to tell our story to our youth. And it wasn't until quite a while after that we realized that our story was a very, very dangerous story to be trying to teach the youth on how to have a relationship. Because we met, there was a poem I wrote for our, I'll see if I can remember it. There's a poem I wrote for our wedding. I think it said, we met in December by April engaged, decided to marry before either aged, 
Before not so long, we started to see just how expensive a wedding could be. After suits and dresses, cakes and treats, we had no more money for honeymoon sweets. So instead of a gift which we'd probably sell, perhaps a donation in our wishing well was the poem that we had in our invite. But in that, in the beginning, was we met in December by April engaged, and we were married by December the next year. So basically within a year, we had met and were married. And it sounds like a really, really cool story to tell, right? It's one of those love stories, like, oh my gosh, it's like, you, just, you guys just knew? And like, yeah, 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 we just knew. <laughs> yeah. But then you tell it to people and they'll be like, oh, is that going to happen for me? Is that the way it's supposed to be done? But like, I'm pretty sure in here, like, everybody's got a different story. And maybe it's advice that should be followed and maybe it's not. Like, maybe you shouldn't tell people this is what you should do. Like, because what people were doing is, and I mean, it's your story, so you think it's fantastic. So you tell it like it's what you should do. And then you start to think to yourself, maybe people should not get engaged after like a couple of months if you don't like I don't know like not that's not for everyone uh, the other thing was we used to teach something that we hadn't practiced because what we would do was we would take the example of what we had got what where we had gotten and then we pretend like our past hadn't played effect like played a role into how we were able to make that decision when we got there so we would pretend like you know if you live the way that we're saying that you guys should live now in this culture you can still do what we did when we met but you can't you have to look at the culture that we had before we met and then when we met why it worked it's because of the history that we had had it's not as easy as Oh, nice love story. You saw each other, you knew it was just 100%. It was never going to be any different. I started to figure this out when the youth used to ask me all the time. Why was it that I could say the things to Tash and do the things with Tash? And um, this was the girls that were talking when they would come and ask us about the story. Because usually the guys are like, oh, yeah. But the girls are like, oh, love story. That's so fantastic. So they'd come and be like, oh, so you did what and how this happened and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, that's so beautiful. That's so nice. And then they'd say to me, like, but the guys here, none of them do that. Like, what's that about? They don't pursue us. They don't do anything. Like, we're sitting back here waiting for someone to kind of, like, ask us to do something. And, like, nobody's doing anything. This was, uh, it became blatantly obvious when there was a story, I won't name anyone, I know that you guys won't know them, but I won't name them anyway because I don't want to shame anybody. But there was a story in the church about a girl who um, was asked on a date by a guy who was quite new to the church. He was very, very new to the church, so he didn't get the culture. He didn't realize what everybody else knew and what everybody else realized. So he just came in and he was like, oh, I like that girl. I'll take her out for, like, what did the, oh, for dinner. Take her out for dinner. Invite her on a date or something like that. So he's like, okay, just asked her to go to Nando's with him. So they went to Nando's together, and they were sitting down together, and he's just thinking, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to get to know each other, all that kind of stuff. So they order their food, food comes to the table, and she looks him dead in the eyes and says, have you prayed about this? And he was like, I just wanted to go to have dinner. Like, the chickens arrived on the table. They want to eat chicken together. Oh, he wants to eat chicken together. But she thinks that this means that he had... In her mind, when she had explained it later, in her mind, if he didn't know for sure that he was supposed to pursue this as being told by God, he should not be pursuing this. She actually eventually... I think she actually left. I think she walked out. Yeah, she actually left. She actually walked out. Yeah, 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 she actually walked off. She actually left the date, yeah. Because he said no. He said, no, I didn't pray about it. I just wanted to kind of like get to know you. 
Yeah. So, yeah, actually left. So after we had heard a few of these kind of stories, we were wondering what was going on. So we decided that we were going to have a talk with the young adults. So we sat down, we had a uh, talk with the young adults about relationships. Um, and when we had a talk to them, what we found out was that all of the girls had said, sorry, no, 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 the boys had said that there was no way they were ever going to ask out any of the girls in the church. And all the girls were shocked. They were like, why would you not? And they were like, no, there's no way we're ever doing that. Because as soon as we do, we know everyone's going to be talking about the fact that so-and-so is going to be with so-and-so. And there was this there was this thing of if you were to go out with somebody, it would mean that you're going to be with that person forever. Like if you liked somebody, it meant like you were locked in with that person. And there was going to be rumors about it. Everyone was going to talk about it. And all the guys were like, we're not doing that. And then none of the girls were, none of the girls would consider, when we asked them, would you consider taking any of these guys, would you consider going out with any of these guys if they actually asked you out? If they said, you know, let's go for coffee, would you go for coffee? And all the girls were like, no. And we were like, why not? <laughs> and all the girls were basically like, you know, like, oh, we know them. And because we know them, we know that we wouldn't want to be with them or whatever. So our point, our point was, you don't know them. You know them in a group setting. Knowing somebody in a group setting is totally different to knowing somebody in an individual setting. And going out and having coffee with somebody is not a big deal. You don't have to pray and hear from God to go out and have coffee with somebody and you know, get to know somebody. But this is what the culture had been developed in the church over, over years. And like I said, I feel like we played a small part in it, but it was also like a big uh, global church culture. The way that uh, dating had worked in New Zealand when I was in high school was you liked somebody and then what you wanted to do was you wanted to ask them out. So you'd go and you'd be like, oh, do you want to go out with me? And if it, So we didn't call it the term. So this book that had been written and like introduced into church culture was an American book, so it had American terminologies and it was different. And I remember thinking when I heard about the book, which was much later, that I knew of its existence because a lot of the terminologies that I had learned about how I should go about relationships in churches were the same as the terminologies that were in this book. And it was about, I think you might have heard of it, it would have been courtship, not dating. So you were supposed to court, not date. That was the way that it was supposed to be. Now, in New Zealand, we didn't really even have dating. That was more of an American terminology. So they'd go on dates. And when you were dating, you'd date multiple people. But, like, you would go steady when you decided you wanted to be with one person, is the way that the Americans would talk about it. But over here, you'd just go up to someone and be like, oh, I like you. You want to go out? And then when you, when if they said, yeah, yeah, I want to go out with you, it meant that you were, like, boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, and everybody knew, oh, so-and-so's going out with so-and-so, you know, like, their boyfriend and girlfriend kind of thing. And uh, the problem... The problem was that it caused exclusivity in the relationship. So it was ex an exclusive relationship. So-and-so was going out with so-and-so. Now, my history was that I went out with different people all the time. So, like, I was constantly like, you want to go out with me? Yeah, 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 I'll go out with you. And then, like, you just kind of like, I don't know, it's a silly boy thing. You don't really break up. You just kind of, like, stop talking to them and, like... <laughs> And then, like, later on, you're, like, going out with somebody else over here and, like, yeah. But it was, like, I can't remember how old I was. I was really young. But I remember telling my mum about it, and my mum used to just laugh, and she used to think it was funny. Ireland's always got a new girlfriend. <laughs> what we teach our kids in church, um, if we're not careful, can be, uh, can be dangerous, because what we end up teaching them is that not to have any experience with the opposite sex. We teach them that... Um, uh, sex and sexuality is dangerous, and we have to be very, very careful, which 100%... 
we have to be careful. But then if we make the uh, members of the opposite sex like not have relationships with each other, not get to know each other, then especially for someone like me who I had one younger sister, I thank God that I had as much um, experience with the opposite sex as I did when I was younger because I've watched people who, and this is something that I notice as well, that my friends who had heaps of sisters were like all good with girls. They were all good with girls. And then like a lot of the people that I saw when they'd end up in relationships later on, um, they would have good relationships with females because they understood females. Whereas like when there's mystery, boys want to know about girls and girls want to know about boys. Picking the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, raise your children with, serve in ministry with, pursue your dreams with, will be the second biggest decision that you will ever make. If that is the case, then it needs to be the subject to all the things in which big decisions should. That means prayer. That means advice from trusted friends and family. That means experiential knowledge. But when it comes to love, what we've been convinced is that what we actually need is to get a special feeling, that chemistry, that Cupid's arrow, which makes it blatantly obvious that we're supposed to be joined forever to this person. Based on feelings, we make huge decisions. We want beautiful love stories because that's what we've seen on TV. Could it be that Cupid's arrow is actually a fiery dart of the enemy? If when we join together, we are a prophetic picture of Christ in the church, then we need to make sure that as men, we find Christ's church in our wives, and as women, we need to find Jesus in our husbands. I don't think that's something that we can possibly do if we don't have good relationships. I just want to end on um, something that, it was a discussion I was having from one of our, we still talk to a few of our youth that we had, the ones that had um, basically been with us the longest, and one of them one time was asking me, because we were talking about relationships, because it was something that a lot of the, especially the girls were struggling with, and it would be the main thing that we talk about with them all the time, especially if we got them one-on-one, they'd want to talk about the relationships, because there's still a lot of the girls that were not in any relationships, heaps of them have gotten like to an age where they would really love to be married as well. It's not like they don't want to be married, but they're not married. And um, we're talking to one of the girls, and she said to me, she asked me about Kizia, and she said, um, so what are you saying? Like, what are you actually physically going to do, like with your daughter? You know, like, are you going to, like, how are you going to make her do this and make her do that and make her do all these things that you're saying you want to do? I said, I can't make her do anything. I can't make her do anything. I had friends that were not allowed to do certain things and they were the ones that did those things the most behind their parents' back. I was the one in school who my mum did not care. I was allowed to do whatever I wanted and I'd come home and I'd tell my mum all about it and she knew all about, she knew all, the, she'd forget all the names of my girlfriends, but she knew all the names of my girlfriends. She knew like everything I was up to, she knew it all. In my mind, with my daughters, I can't control what they're going to do all I can control is how I teach them and how open I can be so that they'll come and tell me when they do things and when they make mistakes and, and things like that. I can't control them. I want them to experience uh, a life where they are confronted with the decisions that they make. We're living in a Hollywood world where people believe that uh, love and love stories are more important than making wise, um, informed decisions. And divorce skyrocketed 
when Hollywood started to tell these stories. So the, there is an expectation, so they've done polls on what people's expectations were on marriage. And before, uh, before the Hollywood ideal of marriage, people's expectation of marriage was that you come together so that you can provide a solid family base that you can have children and raise children in. And that was the idea of marriage. But now, the main idea of marriage is that you fall in love with somebody and because you have such passionate, wonderful love with each other, you're going to want to be together forever. And divorce rates have gone through the roof because people have lost the ideal that you are supposed to be together so that you are a united force so that you can have children and raise children. And what people want is they want beautiful love stories. The church needs to be a place where marriage is something that people see from the outside. They want because it looks attractive and we do it well and they want to either repair their marriages or they want to find somebody where they can have that kind of a marriage, that they want to have that kind of a connection, that they want to have that kind of a partnership. So as a church which has had almost as shocking statistics as far as divorce is concerned for the past 20, 30 years, this is something that we really, really need to sort out. I don't think this culture that we've created is helping, and I think that it's something that we really need to change. It's 12 o'clock. So I'm not exactly how to sh sure how to end it. I could either close in prayer, or I could... If you guys wanted to ask any questions, I'm happy to answer some questions if you wanted to do that, but I don't want to take too long. I'll ask Joe, would you like me to wrap it up? Or You're good? Does anybody, well, does anybody have any questions? Would anybody like to ask anything? come and tell you things that you really don't want to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's something that, that is a struggle. That, that, but, but definitely, like, I, I remember reading something the other day that was talking about um, abortion rates in the, in the US. And the abortion rates in the US are actually exceptionally high in Christian families um, because the kids are afraid, because they know their parents are, like, anti-abortion. So they're afraid to tell their parents that they're pregnant and that, you know, so that's what they'll do behind their parents' back. They'll go and, if they get abortions a lot of the time, they're afraid because they know their parents don't believe in it. So they, but that means that they're not comfortable to go and tell their parents what they've done because they, they think that, you know, I don't know, they don't think their parents will be compassionate or, or whatever. But other than me telling my daughter that she can come to me with anything and that I will listen to her, and when the chance is given for me to listen to her to do it without judgment, if I fail at that, then she probably is not going to come to me the second time, but I need to make sure that I'm successful the first time. Yeah. I had a, yeah, with my mum I used to tell her everything. I had a great relationship with her. But that was because I remember she used to drop me off to take, like, to, okay, this is, you shouldn't go to movies. Like, this was one of the things the youth would ask us when we talked about it. They'd be like, so what can we do? Coffees, dinners, should we go to movies? And I was like, no. <laughs> but <laughs> movies are bad. <laughs> Not a good plan. Yeah, I did lots of bad things in movie theatres. But, like, the, the fact that, I was too, I didn't have a car, I couldn't get anywhere, but my mum would like, she knew that I was going to meet a girl at the mall and she'd just take me there and she'd drop me off to meet a girl at the mall. Like, and I remember all my friends who had 
all my friends, I remember thinking back, thinking all my friends who had relationships like that, where they could do all that, most of them, most of them are actually like happily married people. And then a lot of the people that have been like very exclusive and like, like I remember a friend of mine, like he was the, probably the naughtiest out of all of us when it came to like, like girls. And he was the one whose parents had like cracked a whip on him. Like, don't you dare, you're not allowed to go out with girls until you're like a certain age or something like that. And he did the most nonsense behind his parents' back. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Please feel free, be comfortable. I'll try not to take too long. All good? All right. I'll close in prayer. And if anybody wants to talk afterwards, like I know this isn't what everybody thinks or what everybody would agree with or whatever those kinds of things. Like we don't have to always agree. We can, we can like discuss things and all that kind of stuff. So I just really want to, I'll close in prayer. And if there's anything you want to say that you didn't want to say in front of everyone, you can, I'm definitely free and open for you to come and talk to me afterwards. So yeah. Thank you, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that as a church, a people who say that we represent you, that uh, we would represent you well in every area, Lord God, and especially in an area that is a prophetic picture of what you're supposed to be to your church, that, that we would have good, strong marriages, that we would have good, strong relationships uh, with one another, Lord, and that we, would, we really would represent you well, Father God, that it would be something that on the outside people see and desire for themselves, Lord God, and desire for their children, Lord God, and want to have strong families, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, let's give a hand for Alan. I think it's important in church culture that we um, understand that Alan said it straight up, that we don't agree with everything that everyone else thinks, but we need to discuss things. Because what we do sometimes in church culture is we cover over things and those issues become bigger. So the thing is that I loved what Alan had to say this morning because what it did, and some of you, it challenged you. But now we can start talking because if we don't talk, things will happen behind the scenes that we can't control. So it's important we talk about this stuff because we're talking about the next generation and the generation after that. And also, don't get so caught up, cement yourself to what you've known for the last 20, 40 years because that's dangerous in itself. Uh, our, our principles and what we live by according to the word of God doesn't change but maybe our methodology and actually our working and our thinking needs to change as well and this is real stuff but we're real people we heard about someone that's going through his um, alcohol treatment or HIPAA this morning that's real stuff this is not fake stuff he doesn't just come up here and make it up but those are real things we need to talk about because those are real things happening in our community and in our families and we can put all the Christian jargon on top of it, but it won't change those lives for Christ. Amen. God bless you. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> okay, let's have a talk next door. Uh, there's tea and coffee next door. And like Alan said, he's available for a discussion. And that's what we need to do, dialogue. Amen. Have a great day. Bless you all. Thank you so much.